Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And if you like this podcast and you would like to support it coming out weekly, uh, which it looks like we are managing to do every week this year, which was our big aim at the start of the year, was to see if we could put up a weekly episode for an entire year. And I've been banking a few episodes recently to uh, to be able to release while Gruen is on, because that tends to take my full attention while we're making Gruen. That's back uh, the Wednesday before the AFL Grand Final, like the 25th of September or something like that. If you're an ABC fan or if you're overseas and you're able to access Australian TV, it is back from, uh, well, what, three weeks from today. Three weeks from today, first episode of Gruen for the new season will be back on your tally so um what we baby what we've basically been trying to do is um uh, bank a whole bunch of episodes and uh, in doing that it means that i think that we're going to put one out every week of the year so if you enjoy the podcast coming out weekly and uh you've liked it over the 100 plus episodes that we've done and you would like to support it patreon.com patreon.com slash philosophy patreon.com slash Philosophy. I've just had to um, silence Dave Hughes, who's calling me on the other line. So I'll call you back in a second, Hughesy. You won't be listening to this. And uh, you certainly won't be listening to this uh, three hours from now when it goes up and you realize that you... you could... Anyway, you don't need to know about my uh, what's going on in my real world. Point is, I'm going to call Hughesy in a minute. Uh, so <laughs> uh, if you like the podcast, patreon.com slash philosophy, you can join as little as a uh, dollar a month. At some stage, we'll put some extra content up there. But in the meantime, just... Go and join and we can help pay everyone. Keep the lights on, uh, keep the costs down, uh, and do more podcasts. Um, today's episode is with one of my oldest friends. I've known Howie for well, 35 years. Uh, Mark Howard, if you don't know Howie, if you're just listening in and you don't know who Howie is, he has one of the most successful uh, sports interview podcasts. It's basically like this without swearing and with better research, and he only talks to sports people. It's called The Howie Games. It's a brilliantly successful podcast. Uh, it is a a wonderfully um, heartfelt and interesting and respectful and probing and uh, it's just a really brilliant podcast. It's called The Howie Games. Check it out if you like your sport and you like your interviews. If you like this, but you wish this was better research and had less swearing, um, much like <laughs> you will hear in this episode. I think my dad might listen to this one. Hello, dad, if you're listening, uh, because Howie's on and uh, he loves Howie and he listens to his podcast all the time. So dad, I apologize for all the swearing in this. There is more than normal. Uh, the reason is that uh, how he didn't want to swear and he made me do his swearing for him. So you will hear that during the episode. So don't listen in the car with the kids unless you want them to learn some new words. Uh, that is a message uh, to, in general, not not specifically to my dad. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, this has been a rambly intro and I didn't think it was going to be, but uh, bloody Husey interrupted me in between and I lost my train of thought. So anyway, enjoy today's episode with one of the great blokes with such a great Life Perspective. This is Mark Howard. Howie. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the podcast starts. I'm just going to jump in. Sometimes I do a bit of ramble about the guest or what my relationship is with the guest. Uh, well, I guess now technically I am doing that sort of ramble. I'm just doing a ramble about a ramble. It's, it's quite meta. So I'm just going to jump in and ask who, who the guest is. That's how the podcast starts. Who are you? I am Mark Howard, otherwise known as Howie by most people. Mate, I'm a husband and a father, and that's pretty much me, I reckon. Uh, so Mark Howard, yes. Howie, 
<laughs> Howie as I know you, certainly. Yes, for a long time. Uh, how old would we have been when we first met? I came to the grammar school where I left Sydney. In <laughs> it sounds my, fancy, but it was in the country, well, guys. <laughs> I was coming from Carambar North Primary in Sydney in my stubbies and T-shirt. All of a sudden, the second term of grade six of the grammar school with Mr. Crow with a blazer, a tie, and flannel pants and black Clark school shoes. So it would have been very early in the term two of grade six. Uh, it, was, it was a weird system, that school, where a lot of people would join the school in year six. So yep. your final year of the junior school, because mm. the, the, the grammar school in Sale had a, a junior school and a senior school, different campuses. And for whatever reason, it, you would join in grade six rather than in year seven, or yeah. at least some people would do that. And, and I had done the same thing. So I had, I'd come from Hayfield Primary. Fair to say, not the same dress standards at Hayfield Primary either. So <laughs> I hated the blazer and tie from right at the start. It wasn't my go. You're not a blazer and tie operator. No. In fact, it's probably fair to say that both of us, you know, have spent a lot of our lives pursuing the idea that you should wear something that's comfortable rather than necessarily something that's presentable. I'd agree with that. And I put that solely and wholly back to the grammar school because they made us wear the blazer and tie. And after sport on a Wednesday, you had to put your tracksuit pants on. You couldn't just leave your shorts on, which was outrageous for me. Now, I, I don't know if you remember this, but mm. uh, around year 11, year 12, I decided to adopt a policy of, because you could wear your tracksuit if you had PE up next, I think, was the rule right. at the school yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yep, yep, yep. And I just adopted a policy of whenever a teacher would ask me, I had PE up next <laughs> and was spending a fair amount of year 11 and year 12 in my tracksuit pants. There was also the rule that if it was above 35 degrees, there would be a red flag up the flagpole and you didn't have to put your blazer on to leave school. Those were wonderful days, my friend. So I want to talk about the clothes just for a sec. It might seem like a silly diversion, but <laughs> I think that there is something in it. And I, I, in fact, even today when you were coming to do this podcast, mm. one of the things that I was aware of is it's quite a cold day in Melbourne. And I'm, I'm a person who's extremely sensitive to cold, whereas you rock a pair of songs and a pair of boardies pretty much yep. in the dead of winter. You'd probably go skiing in board shorts. Yeah. I'm not big on clothes. I find uh, pants and the shoes both restrictive will, so I try and avoid most of them in my life. Uh, I've got jeans on today because I'm going to the footy at the MCG tonight, mm. but I've got thongs and a t-shirt on. Um, yeah, pretty casual. Yeah, I was literally thinking we're going to have to re have a weird temperature in this room. Like, So I've brought extra clothes that I can just put on. Well, you if... dressed up like you're going to Sochi for the Winter Olympics. <laughs> and I'm here like we're off to Hawaii. <laughs> um, so what role has that idea? Because I do think that the way you dress... It becomes, you know, you read those articles about the tech billionaires, you mm. know, is the one that comes to mind, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, who wear the same thing basically to work every day. And sometimes when I think of you, it, it almost feels like you've adopted another uniform, even though your uniform yeah. isn't the blazer and tie, point. Point. your uniform is being the opposite of the blazer and tie. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think that probably reflects my whole life that I'm not big on structure or processes or uh, ties and blazers and the attitude that comes with that. I know when I go to the cricket now, it used to be at 10 and uh, now at Fox Cricket, they have all stuff amazingly lined up for you. And I would prefer to get changed at the last possible moment. So I'll walk around at the MCG and my boardies and thongs and the boss will go, mate, come on, it's boxing day, it's time to get ready. And then you put your suit and tie on and then I guess you're at work in some ways, but yeah, no, I'm not big on, um, 
formality will. Do you know um, where that comes from? Is it is it a reject some sort of rejection of authority or unearned authority or anything like that, or is it just? No, I think it's just. I live my perfect life, but I've got a second perfect life that I don't live, and that's board shorts on a surfboard in Costa Rica or Southern Africa or Papua New Guinea. And sometimes I can see that alternate existence without going too far up, mate. I think, wow, I've got the best gig here, but would I swap it all for that? And often the answer is yes. So that's interesting to me. Like, and it's one of the things I think it is most interesting to me about you is that I think that you do have as compelling a life, a life that you would be as excited to do, yep. as interested in, as fulfilled by as a person. If your life just went in a different direction and you decided to you know, go surfing and, and live that life exclusively, that you'd be probably in different ways as happy as you are with the, the life that you're living here. Yeah. And now that I've got kids, I want them to see that life. I traveled, as you know, we left school and you went to journalism in Canberra and I went to uni at Deakin. And then as soon as I left uni, I traveled and I just met people and saw people that lived an alternate life and they looked really happy and they weren't putting the tie on and they weren't putting the blazer on and they weren't going to an office, but they were full of, and it made me become, I wasn't an inquisitive person. I am now because I just met all these fascinating people, whether it be in the Middle East or South America or Africa that just had these tremendously adventure-filled lives. And to me, it was like, wow, this guy's 37 and he's been here and he's done that and he's experienced this. That, to me, seemed a more fulfilling way to live your life than go and sit in the office from nine till five and do what you need to do and pay the mortgage. And I've well, I paid the mortgage now, which is cool, so I don't have to worry about the mortgage. But sometimes... I think to myself, I, I just recently signed a long-term contract after years of one-year contracts. Um, and my wife thought it was fantastic because there was some solidity and planning in our life, but I'd probably be happy to go along and continue with those one years just in case. I woke up that day, Will, and thought, today's the day the family's going to move to Nicaragua and we're going to live that life. So there's so many things within that that I'd love to unpack. <laughs> there seriously is. Can but... we get back to being at school together? Okay, not? we will. We will. This yeah. is not a, I told you before, this is not a linear podcast. This is not your no, fucking not... Howie Games <laughs> with all your research where you walk <laughs> through know. someone's career in a really nice order. I, know. I don't have any kids to ask you a question <laughs> I, later. I, I need to thank you for the Howie Games <laughs> right here and now because it's become a nice podcast and I sat down with you opposite Spring Street in That's Melbourne right. three European years ago, cafe, I European cafe. And I said, mate, can we catch up for lunch? And you said, what do you want to have a chat about? And I said, yeah, I'm thinking about doing podcasts. And you're like, this is the way you need to do it. Um, and you gave me the push that I needed. So I thank you. It, it, it's become wonderfully successful and I will actually circle back on that. But I, need to. I just no, want to I want thanks. to, because I, I mean, it's rare that I get to talk to another podcaster. Mm. And for those who haven't listened to the Howie games, uh, it's like this, but better researched and in order and only about sports people. That's I like basically lack, it. I like the lack of order. Yeah. yeah. I like your lack of order. I have a non-linear storytelling mm. structure, Howie, but there were so many things in that first thing that you said that I think this might be one of those episodes where the, the, the premise of this podcast is I ask people if they have a philosophy of mm -hmm. any kind. And it feels like I want to ask you, sometimes I ask at the end in the middle, but it feels like I'd like to get that out of the way so that we can just talk. So 
Do do you have one? Is there a particular philosophy by which you live your life? Because I listened to your podcast, I obviously knew the question was coming. And congratulations with the Andy Lee episode as well, because I listened to that two days ago, and that was courageous on your behalf. If people haven't listened to it, I'm going to plug Will's podcast now. Listen to the Andy Lee episode because <laughs> you're plugging my podcast well, on my podcast. Mate, so. It was it was it was like. It was one of those where you're dragging your fingernails down the blackboard. You can't listen and you can't not listen because it was very confronting, the discussion between the issues you and him had had. So wow. I, I'd... Wait until some shit I've got about you that I need to... <laughs> we can get to that. We can get to that. We were 15 years <laughs> I know. I know. I know. And you had all the luck with the girls. And Anyway, um, so I thought about what philosophies I have because it's not something that whacks away in my mind and the audience is going to be disappointed. But I, I, I came up with a couple... Two for life and one for work, I think. My two for life, uh, as I said, they're not going to change your life if you're listening to this. The first one, which is a complete tenant in my life, is to be positive. Absolutely, in every situation you can. The second one is do not concern yourself at all with things you can't control, which has been a real benefit for me. Do not concern yourself at all. And the philosophy as far as work goes is just say yes, no matter what they ask you to do. And you think, God. How I'm going to do that because well, I've had all sorts of jobs and I've had all sorts of roles where I thought I've got no idea what to do here. But I think people just want you to say yes and figure it out from there, and that's that's helped me. So, all right, that let's go back to high school now. Then, yes, because you you said be positive there, which I think I've always uh, yeah in my mind you've always struck me as a pretty positive person. Did you always feel like a positive person even way back then? No, no, I think I learnt to be positive. When probably when I was traveling, because, you know, what's the alternative? If you're, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't matter where it is. And you've only got yourself to rely on. There's no use whinging about the fact that bloke hasn't stopped to pick you up as a hitchhiker or you don't have any money or the accommodation's no good or the wheels are falling off the bus. You might as well just be positive about it. So I think it's alert. It can be a learnt thing to be positive. The alternative is to be negative, which... I have no patience for, which is a negative about me being positive, if you can follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that that is a challenge? Because if you are a person who is a glass half full person, there are, there are people who struggle with being able to get their minds around the idea. And mm. often it, you find people who have a positive outlook to life. Sometimes when they encounter somebody who, you know, because of the way their brain works, you know, has a more negative a approach on life. Do you find that confronting? To deal with that? Have you had much experience of that? I distance myself from it. Right. I surround myself by positive people. I, I'm naturally positive, but I've learned to be even more positive. I don't, yeah, I wish I, uh, this job that you do and I do, I think the greatest key to it is to show empathy, especially when you're chatting with someone and interviewing them and trying to put yourself in their shoes. I wish I had more empathy to those that aren't as positive as me. Um, because I normally just push them to the side because I don't want to get weighed down with their negativity. Worrying about things you can't control is a pretty basic human thing, Yeah, I think. You know, that idea of whether you're living in the past, living in the future, neither of those things are particularly helpful to you. And if you get trapped, you know, going over things that have happened before and that doesn't let you move forward, that's not much good. And if you are constantly, you know, have your brain obsessed with like trying to control things you can't control things in the future, then you, you can't move forward. I mean, I guess that's at its heart what mindfulness is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, being in the moment, being present. So, how much of 
that is about being, it, it relates to being positive relates to also just being present and being in a moment. Yeah. And lack of planning and lack of thinking too much about the future and lack of concerning about your past. That's me. Mm. If uh, it's not that I try not to concern myself about things that are out of my control. I just don't, I just push them to the side. I'll literally, I, I've got to do something next week and it wasn't coming together. My component of it, it was a live podcast show that I'm doing for the first time and the areas out of my control weren't coming together. And I did everything I could to get them to come together. And my wife said, are you worried about it? And I was like, well, I can't do anything about it. So I've forgotten about it. So it's a beautiful, simple way to live your life because you can get tangled up. We'll, and I do it occasionally and I'll kick myself the next day. And I think, why did I spend 15 seconds worrying about that? Cause I had nothing to do with it. I couldn't control it. I couldn't stop it. So why worry about it? So it's a very liberating way to live your life. You should try it. Because you're a dweller. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> you reckon? You are. <laughs> yeah, you of dwell. course I am. I, I don't dwell. dwell. I don't dwell. I never have dwell. I don't see the point in dwelling. I am like 95% dwelling. But you can't do anything about it. I understand that. I'm also like a reasonably intelligent person. Yes. I understand there's nothing positive to be gained from it. But like the way my brain works is my brain picks apart every single moment of every single thing. And I find it hard to... Do you think you can teach your brain not to though? I, I, when I'm saying I'm really positive and I don't dwell on things, I think naturally that's me, but say I was positive to 60% and didn't dwell on things to 60%. I reckon I've taught myself to be positive to 90% and not dwell on things to 90%. So when you dwell on things at like 98%, maybe you could just wind it back slowly over time to 70% and away you go, brother. Well, the good news is I'll now dwell on what you meant by that. So okay. what do you say? 98 and 70. They seem like very okay. specific okay. numbers that well, you've thought about before. There's probably 99. With looking your for an opportunity to bring it up. Don't dwell. Don't dwell, people. Do not dwell. It's a waste of time. If you can't control it, you can't control it. Uh, the idea of saying yes to every mm. job. Mm. Interesting to yeah. me. because I've had, I've had all sorts. Too. Because that can be... Uh, it, look, I, the one thing I would say to that is that Husey and I have spoken about this a bit, which is the idea that particularly as a stand-up comedian, because you are so desperate for the first few years of it to get work and it doesn't come your way, that when it starts coming the hardest thing you ever get to is the point where you actually do say no, because mm. you say yes to everything because you're like, well, this will be over soon. And eventually that can wear you down and be destructive. I have four free podcasts, but I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you do, but I think you, when it comes to you, I have seen you live that principle in your life. Cool. Like what did you imagine when you finished high school? You know, we, I, I, I know you, you know, every day up until that point, mm. you know, and we were pretty close. And so, you know, know a fair bit about you up to that point. But did you know at year 12, did you think you knew what you were going to do next? Did you have a certainty in your mind of like this next step was, is something that I'm. No idea. No idea. As you know, I did a business degree in sports management at Deakin University with our other great mate, Pete Shepherd, who joined it up a year later because he took a gap year. You went off to Canberra. It was involved in sport, which I enjoyed. I didn't realize it was a business degree. So when we got there for the first semester and there was accounting and <laughs> economics, I was like, I can't say what I was like. And I've got to digress from, I love that you can swear on your podcast. I love it. And I love how cool you are when you swear. I traditionally work in the mainstream media and even on my own podcast because there's so many kids listen and they're after mm. inspiration and motivation. I agree. I can't swear. No, don't. I mean. So can you fill it in for me? 
So I got there, right? And semester <laughs> one had on the sheet accounting e- economics. And I thought... Uh, fuck. Correct. <laughs> exactly what I thought. And I did the first week of it, and I thought, this is so... Fucked? Fucking fucked. Correct. Completely fucking fucked. But I don't want to give up, so I'm going to have to stick with this load of... Uh, Horseshit, bullshit. Correct. For the next three years. But I guarantee you, when I finish this pile of... Stinking fucking horsey crap. I'm going to... Fuck off. And go overseas. Tell them all to get fucked. Sorry, hang on, I'm on a roll. It's good. It's liberating for me, because I want to be able to say that, but I can't. So I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, so I finished that degree and I made sure I got it. And I learned to surf during that university. And that was my greatest achievement in university. And then I went overseas. Had you, why did you learn to surf? Because surfing has come to be such a huge yeah. part of your life. Can you remember, had you always wanted to know how to surf? Mate, I, we, we grew up in Gippsland. Well, that's mate. what I mean. <laughs> it's not like like getting, I didn't know if you were getting, we're getting the, barreled in sail, are we? <laughs> I didn't know if there was big waves down the local pool at, like, you know. <laughs> no, we head down to Lock Sport and get shacked. Sea spray, mate. No. I just spend a lot of weekends down at Sea Spray. Name, I didn't know. Name to me one person we ever met at school that surfed. Well, I can't. Well, there you go. So that was not a great uh, thing that was in my mind. There was a bloke at university called Daniel Hill yeah. who uh, was from Noosa and he could surf. And he used to go to Phillip Island and go surfing. And I was in accounting and economics thinking this is... Uh, fucking fucks. Correct. Complete pile of fuck. I'm going to go and see what he does mm. when he goes surfing. And the first time I fell off a board, and for the next six months I continued to fall off a board, has just um, changed everything in my life. And it's dominated my life. I'm no good at it. I'm really not very good at it because I didn't start till I was 20. But where I live, where I've traveled, what I'm trying to do as an education to my kids, so much of it goes back to the beach and surfing. So thank you to Deakin University for getting me to surf. I mean, even what you say there, though, uh, about the idea, I'm no good at it, but it, the role that it plays in your life is still so integral. So I think there's something in that I'd just like to un- unpick, which is the idea of that you can, and again, this is probably, you know, from my point of view, one of the things that I have always struggled with, which is that I I get more enjoyment out of things that I think that I'm good at than I do out of pursuing things that maybe that I'm not good at. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. And surfing to me strikes me as one of those things Yeah, where you're like, yeah, your joy is irregardless of, you don't have to be like the best surfer at the beach or whatever, but the joy you've got out of it is irregardless of needing to perfect it. And I'm, oh, what I've surfed for 20 odd years. So I would have been surfing Let's say 15,000 times I've been surfing. I've gotten bored and I've gone surfing 15,000 times. Three weeks ago, I did a turn that opened my mind to think, that's what you're meant to be doing. I'll never do a turn like that again. It was just like the wave, the water, the wind, me, everything for once, Will, was in the right position and I didn't... Fuck it up. Correct. (laughs) So, and I don't know how I did it. But it uh, it opened a dimension in my brain without the people who think, oh, this bloke's been on the hoochie coochie on the way up here. He's a freak. But it opened a dimension in my brain. To By say, the way, that's not something that anyone on this podcast would judge you for, Howie. No, no, no. And being from the surfing fraternity, I understand that. It just opened my brain that was like, right, that's what you've been trying to do for the last 20 years. You'll never do it again. But it's just, it wasn't perfection, but it was half right.
And to me, that's as close as I'm going to get. So, but it dominates in my life in the fact that I get up every morning and I look at the wind. First thing I do, what's the wind doing this morning? Is a surf going to be any good? Took my kids surfing after school yesterday. Was at the gym today, had a mate saying, mate, have you got time to go for a surf before you go to work? So it does dominate my life where I've traveled around the world. It's often to do with surfing. The people I've met, the places that I've seen, the town I now live in, it's all about surfing. So is there a moment where you knew how big a role it was going to play in your life? Or was it just something that then after a while you realize, oh, this is, has because it, it doesn't start. It's not like no. with the first day you go surfing, you go, all right, great. Cancel all other plans. <laughs> no. I'm moving, I'm no. moving near the beach no. and, I, and my life is going to revolve. I'm going no. to start Googling, you know, surf beaches in Costa Rica. No. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It somehow gradually works it, its way into your life. Yeah. I went with Hilly, Daniel, after eight months of falling off surfboards. I couldn't do it. And Noosa, I can still remember it. It was a thunderstorm, so everyone else came in. The waves were good. And because everyone else came in, I was like, right, well, I'm going to try and get my first wave here. I'm going to risk getting electrocuted because everyone else has gone in. Here's my chance to catch one of these waves. And I caught a wave for the first time and stood up. I think it's that combined with travel that it becomes such a part of your life because I love the feeling of it. I love the being in the ocean and all those hippie freaky stuff people talk about surfing but then to combine that to see the world doing it i think when you put those together and it's just became such an adventure that that's when it becomes part of your life i imagine if you've surfed fifteen thousand times yeah. that you have had some times where it was was there time has there been times where it was terrifying where it was scared where dangerous things happened yep not so much now because i'm too much of a pussy but in situations where you get held under or you've gone surfing where it's too big for you or you're the only one out there or you've seen a shark. I saw a shark off the coast of Samoa and I was with the guy. Uh, actually, it was off the coast of Tonga and I was with the guy who was running the whole place. We were out there surfing with him and his daughter and his son. And the water was crystal clear, 300 metres offshore, and he points over to this shadow in the water that's bigger than me. It's in this enormous shark. And he, I can still remember it, Will. It was 12 years ago. Erica was with me, my wife at the time. She was on the beach tanning up. And he said, everyone get together in a group. So there would have been four of us to get together in this group with this massive shark over to the side. And I'll never forget his daughter. And now I will swear. But it's not me talking. I'm quoting You're someone. quoting someone. I'm quoting Which someone. Which is fine. His daughter's 13. Also, anyone who's offended by swearing has definitely <laughs> turned true. off by now. So I'm getting ready to swear now for the first time, but I'm quoting someone. So the dad says, right, everyone get together in a group. There's a shark over there. It's a tiger. And his 13-year-old daughter says, fuck that, dad. And starts, <laughs> she starts paddling for the shore. And I'm thinking, if she's paddling for the shore, I'm going with her. So... <laughs> you, you do get in situations like that, but mate, back to what you said, there was no plan. Yeah. I, I finished uni and there was no plan yeah. at all. Okay. So what happens next? Because I, this is where, this is I, where did, we, I did say to you. Yeah. This is where that, we split, wasn't it? Yes. And I did say to you that, yeah, this is not an autobiographical podcast. Mm. Like, you know, but I think that what happens next is, you know, particularly in regards to whatever bits of it you want to share, but tell us about you know, where your journey goes next that got you somehow to where you are today. It was definitely the most influential part of my life because I got on a plane with a mate called Timmy Harris and I'd been to LA once with mum and dad in the year 12 midterm holidays. Right. Timmy was from a small country town called Dumbolk. He'd never been out of Victoria. 
and we worked for three months after uni. So it was my dad's birthday, the 3rd of March, 1995. We got on a plane at destination, Buenos Aires, Argentina. And we're, you know, on the way, we don't speak any Spanish. This is going to be a laugh. And we got off there and we'll, it was like, it was uh, completely fucked. No, <laughs> no, it was more like we got off fucking the airport scary. and we were. It was oh, fucking terrifying. Yeah, it was, it was a complete was, other. It was world. just all these Argentinian cats speaking mm. Spanish. Funnily enough, that's what they do over yeah. there. And taxi drivers yelling at you and screaming at you and not knowing anything or anyone or the language yeah. or literally how to get anything to eat or get a hotel. It's and not like you've rocked up to Paris no. where like everybody, they might pretend that they d- don't speak English, but at least if they work at a hotel or a cafe, they've, right. got, they've got enough words for the tourists. There's no one. So I, I spent adventures, but I mean adventures every day, climbing volcanoes, hiking through the Amazon, surfing unknown waves, visiting tribes out in the middle of Africa, crossing into Syria in the Middle East, going to Rwanda without a visa and bribing my way into the country to see the mountain gorillas after the genocide, which was late 94, 95, and I was there in 96. So you lived a life, Will, where, and this is what it comes back to what you wear and all that type of thing. You lived a life that was one, it was boys own. It was adventure, nonstop adventure, because you were staying in dollar hotels which would include breakfast. There's a hotel in Lamu off the coast of Kenya that was a dollar fifty, including breakfast, which was a mango milkshake, mangoes, and a mango pancake, all for a dollar fifty. Hard to beat. So you tra- <laughs> you you, you try if you like mangoes, which I do. <laughs> well, yeah. So there's two parts to it. You are you are living a life that's full of adventure, and there's not much adventure in the modern world where you are completely self reliant. But the most amazing thing about that existence is you wake up in the morning and you are only responsible for yourself. And it's such a selfish way to live. I don't use the word selfish in a negative. It's such a selfish way to live. But if you, if you listen to this and you actually think, have you had a period in your life where you can get up every day for three years and decide what you're going to do that day, what you're going to see, who you're going to associate with, how you're going to approach it, what you're going to open your mind to, what you're going to do. And at the end of the day, decide you know what? I loved it here. I'm going to stay here again tomorrow or I didn't like it so much. So I'm going to get up and find this bus and go to the next spot, which someone's told me about to have that freedom of decision in your life is the most intoxicating, wonderful existence for me that I could ever live. And so it's pretty hard to then say, right, I'm going to put a suit and tie on and pay off a mortgage and sit in a car and live that life after you've lived a life where you have met, mate, you have met people from all walks of life that have done amazing things, seen amazing things and been in amazing adventures. It's pretty hard to go back to what some people would view a more ordinary existence. So you get it? I've never, I've never done that. Like, I, in fact, I've never... It probably even had two weeks where I've done that, you know, in my entire life. Although I will say that that discounts the idea that I chose a profession that has an element of that to it in that my profession is of itself, you know, particularly the stand up aspect of it. You know, you travel, you meet new people, you put yourself in uncomfortable circumstance, you're in different places. So I've incorporated an element of that adventure into my life, but I've never done what you're talking about. 
at all. And part of it sounds incredibly intoxicating to me and part of it sounds absolutely terrifying. What's the terrifying to part me. of it? Well, I like to, you know, what, what, how, how can I worry about the future when I don't know what the future holds? That's no. why you only control the controllables, brother. You can't control the rest of it. So when the old Malawian bus driver says it's going to take three hours and you've been on the bus for 13 hours and he has done that same route for the last 20 years and he still says it takes three hours, you can't control it. You can't do anything about it. So you just roll with it. I think that I would, I think fear definitely would be a, a big thing that would stop me from doing it. Like I don't, that idea of just going from place to place where no one understands me and I don't know how to get anything done. And like you said, you know, the hitchhike, you don't get picked up hitchhiking or the mm. wheel falls off the bus. I think I'd just cry a lot. I think I'd just be like, oh, this is hard. Mate, that's where you I learn. Go home. That's where you learn, which is what they teach in schools these days. They don't employ it, but they teach it. That's where you learn resilience. But it's never, as far as you, as far as you're away, I'll digress for a moment. I got lost in Eastern Africa. I got lost in Uganda and a bloke picked me up and I was trying to get somewhere and there was a miscommunication in the language and he took me one way. I thought we were going another. I was off the Lonely Planet map. I was the king of Lonely Planet and I was by myself. And in Africa, when you get, this sounds ridiculous, but at that stage in the, in the mid nineties, I'm sure it's the same when you're out in the sticks, when you get to a village and you've got your tent you go and see the chief, like he is the chief of the village and you ask him if he can stay in the village and say, oh, I've got hair down to my shoulders, probably haven't washed for a month. I've got a backpack on, got my boardies and thongs on. So I'm happy. I'm happy. You walk into the village and you think to yourself, you know, you think like you're Stanley and Livingston, you reckon you're the first white man to ever come to the settlement and the kids come out and they want to touch your hair. Sometimes they want to cut your hair. And so you go and meet the chief, right? And you think, this bloke, he's never laid eyes on a Mazungu before, white man. He comes out in a billabong t-shirt. <laughs> and at that point you realize, however far you are, you're never actually completely off the grid and even less so in the world today, which I find a great shame. I took my family to Panama, Costa Rica, uh, a year and a half ago. And I said, we need to stay in a couple of backpackers to really get the feel of what's going on here. And we went into a backpackers in San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica. And I walked in, it was like, this is, this feels like coming home. This is fantastic. My kids are going to sit here at a table and they're going to have dinner with a Frenchman and a West Indian and a South African and a Malaysian. And this is going to blow their mind. And we walked in there and everybody was on their mobile phone on social media. And they weren't saying, Hey mate, have you been to this volcano, Aranal? Have you been there? What's it like? They were Googling Aranal. And I was like, wow, the world through all its connectiveness has lost the great beauty of what I used to love and that travel. And you wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't speak to my folks for six months, for six weeks. I, the letters I've got that I wrote them, I wouldn't do it now because I just send them a text or an email, which I think is a great shame. So that's interesting to me because I guess it's about, it's connected the world for the people who can't, you know, do that sort of travel. But for the people who can, it's taken something away from the, mm. the experience. Yeah. yeah. My word it has. I understand that. And even just the idea of you said that you're off the lonely planet or you're looking at an actual map and you're not like on Google maps no. or being able to go, look, you know what? I can probably still get an Uber out here. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I can get to a nice hotel. And that's and not why you're there. You might as well stay in Melbourne if you want to do that. So, but you said earlier, mm. you said, I don't think I used to be an inquisitive person. No. 
but now I consider myself to be an inquisitive person. But obviously somewhere before you started this trip, you decided you want to be inquisitive because this is not a trip taken by somebody who's not inquisitive. You know, a non-inquisitive person doesn't want to go out and learn about things that you can't just look up or hear about from somebody else. I can picture the exact point. Uh, the great Ian Howard, a.k.a. the Eagle, as you know, my dad, because he installed a cricket pitch for you at Hayfield from the uh, paper mill felt, turned a bit that deck too, didn't it? On the fourth day. Yeah, on the fourth day. <laughs> on the fourth day. Yeah. The Eagle, uh, who hadn't been out of Australia, had to go to Brazil for work when, I don't know, we were probably in year nine. And he came home and, uh, as you know, he's a great photographer, had taken a few photos and he'd been to some paper mills and he'd been somewhere near the Amazon. He brought me home a Brazilian soccer shirt and showed me 10 photos of Brazil and the Amazon. And I was like, wow, um, I'm going to swear now, wow, that shit's on what's going on here in tyres in Victoria. Um, that's me. I want to see it. I want to see what the Amazon's like. So I guess that was the, the seed. It, used to, it drove him around the world, uh, twist in the end because... I was off traveling and he wanted me to follow a career. As you know, he's, he's a man that worked for the same company for a long time and provided a wonderful existence for the family. But he was pretty, he was probably living the life that I'm talking about. I was trying to avoid. So he, Eagle, he'll listen to this because he's a big fan of your work. Sometimes oh. think some of your work's a bit blue. But I was going to say, well, he's, he's going to struggle with the first half of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. then I, would no, imagine. I haven't sworn. <laughs> I haven't sworn, mate. You sworn for me. Yeah. So he. I mean, more than I ordinarily would on this <laughs> podcast, ironically. Right. And the other thing is that Graham, my dad, does not listen to this podcast and I am absolutely fine with that. But this is the one because he listens to your podcast. Does he? Oh, Good yeah, on you, loves Graham. It. Absolutely loves it. Um, uh, uh, but he, he might be tempted to tune into this one because <laughs> right. you're on it and he'll be so offended by the fact that I swore so much. Well, if, can I just say, Dad set me on that path, but if your old man Graham is going to listen to this, the fact that he went to a good mate of our mate, uh, a good mate of our Shep's wedding and put the radio in his ear and listen to the test match during the ceremony. If I didn't love the man already, I loved him even more after that. That's as good a performance as I've seen by anyone's father ever. Uh, I, people think I'm joking, but you you grew up, uh, you know, with Grammy, with Grammy. So <laughs> you, you know this. I, I used to tell a story about uh, he came and saw me the first time I ever played the Sydney Opera House. Right. I invited him and Mum to come up to the. Um, you know, I was like a pretty big deal, right? You know, mm. it's the Sydney Opera House. Of course it is. You know, they should come up and see the show. Uh, and they came up and <laughs> dad, you know, he's not a big, he comes to the show, which I think is lovely, but this is not for him. This is not his entertainment. No. It's not made for my dad, you know? <laughs> it's not. It's so not. like uh, mum likes it. You know, I think mum comes to the shows and she actually really enjoys it. And how, I think mum would. she go with the language? She's all right. Okay. Yeah. You know. All right. Um, but I, I mean, I'm sure they'd prefer, you know, I'm sure there's stuff that I talk about and do that they'd prefer that I didn't, but you know, okay. haven't asked them for money since you knew. So <laughs> right, I, think, right, right. I think, but Grammy, he wasn't, that's not his fight. go. It's not his go. Not really his go, but anyway, don't normally hear from him in the crowd. Definitely. And I remember this night at the opera house where, uh, I've, I've told one joke and I kind of hear something, you know, I'm like, I reckon that was dad. And then another time I hear something and I reckon that was dad. And anyway, it turns out same thing. Had the transition here listening to the cricket and got was reacting to the cricket. Someone had got, got a wicket. He's like, oh. I was like, oh, you must think that's a good joke. No? No, I love you, Dad. So it was Dad that set me unwittingly yeah, on that path. Right. Unwittingly. I, um, people ask if my parents are funny and, um, I think my mum was always pretty funny, but I, mum's funny. I never necessarily thought of my dad as being, you know, a really funny person. Um, 
as I've got older, I've noticed that he has a, a quite a dry sense of humor. But the one time I remember that I actually was like, oh my God, dad, you are funny. Is Do you remember this was like, do you remember we were playing the, uh, football in the corridor at my house in between the bedrooms? Yes. There was that game where we had the, the two doors and you had <laughs> yeah. to kick the, the ball of socks or the mini footy or whatever it was. I was Barrett and you were probably... Dougie Brad, Brad Hardy. Brad Hardy. Yeah, that'd be so, about right. Yeah, I remember. And I don't we know what's coming. And anyway, there was a, a lamp, like, you know. Was. Up, was on the roof. And, you know, in the way that kids do. And Barrett was on fire. We're smashing this football at each other. Yes. It's probably hit the lamp a couple of times, but eventually you've smashed one straight into the lamp. It's gone down on the ground. It's absolutely smashed everywhere. Yeah. And we've gone out sheepishly to tell, to tell the folks. And... Graham has deadpanned it in a way that like, as in like, like, as if you were seriously upset about it and that you had to walk home to, to Tyus. I remember something. Do you remember this? So he told me to head off home. Yeah. He said, he told you to head off home. (laughs) And I remember you kind of half walking out of the house before I realized dad was joking. (laughs) And I was like, that's genuinely funny, Graham. Like, I still remember that. Can I share you another memory? My most distinct memory. And I haven't done it since. Which birthday party did you decide to go fancy dress at, at your place? What? Oh, it so, so I heard you talk about this actually on the, on the radio the other day, or mention what, reference what, it. What birthday was it? Like it's got to thirteen. Yeah, 12, so it's got to be year seven. I would have thought okay. year seven, year eight. So it early was fancy dress. Yeah, because I only had two parties. I'm not a big celebrate my birthday person, so I reckon I had one in year seven or year eight, and one year twelve. That was like. Are you January? 31st. Yeah. yeah, I thought so. So, you have a fancy dress, and I and Mark Strasden's came as clowns. Yes. So, I'm 12. I have not been to a fancy dress party since. I hate fancy dress. So, you are the last man I wore fancy dress for. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's very that's very nice. <laughs> it's a big thing for me. I remember I that. have not worn fancy dress for 29 years. I've avoided it. I just say I'm not going. Or if I do go, I just roll up in normal dress. Yeah. Thongs. T-shirt. I've come dressed as Howie from the Howie Games. That's right. That's right. That's right. So yeah, yeah, that is the last fancy dress I've been to. Uh, So, okay. So you go off on this adventure. Mm. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this travel because I think that there's so many things about it that I'm fascinated by. How often would you, you talk about that idea of it being three years. How long did you think it was going to be when you started out on the journey? We had a one year around the world plane ticket which was Aerolineus Argentinus and KLM, the Dutch airline. And I got to Amsterdam, so six months in South America, six months in North America in a combi van, which is, that's living, Will. We bought a combi van in Arizona, drove it all the way up the West Coast across New York, that's living. You know, a couple of surfboards, a couple of mates, sleeping in the back of a combi van, eating cornflakes, three meals a day, outstanding got to Amsterdam and I remember clearly the ticket had one day to go. I had to fly home the next day and I rang mum and she said, oh, when do we need to come pick you up at the airport? And I said, oh, no, I've decided I'm not coming home. Mum was in tears. And so from there it just extended and extended and extended. And then it's like, what do you, what do you want to come home for? It's not like you've got a job. You're living a pretty good life. I had enough money to get through. I worked occasionally, not a great deal. So at that point, that's when she really started to blow out from one year and just sort of kept going. I was like, I'm not going home. Just sort of continued on that path. And why weren't you going home? Was it just that you were having such a great adventure? Yep. Yep. I couldn't picture going back home because I knew what home was. And home was get a job, 
get yourself sorted out, open a bank account, buy a car, meet the girl, push on. Did you ever think about stopping somewhere? What's the longest you spent in one place in that time? I spent eight weeks in Vancouver painting houses with a I uh, myself and Timmy, the original bloke I left with. We had the combi van. We were the only two that hadn't served time in the Canadian prison system on the painting gang. So within a week, we were the ones buying the paint because we were the only ones that were trustworthy. I can still remember blokes, uh, mate, I still remember blokes cooking heroin in the lunch break and injecting it into their arms. So the paint jobs, if wow. you if you employed us, you're better to get the job done early in the day rather than later in the day, I would have thought. Um, uh, I, it was, so I spent a bit of time there um, and I spent a bit of time in UK doing the typical work in the pub, saving money, basically go to Africa. I, there's nowhere I wanted to stay because I always wanted to see the next spot. I, I remember being in England thinking it might be time, probably 18 months in, it might be time to think about going home because you almost become disconnected from the real world. And I could feel that disconnection, that it's not a real life you're living. And a bloke came into the pub and he showed me some photos of some sand dunes in a country called Namibia, which is in Southwest Africa. And I was like, wow, I've got to see those. So it took me another year to sort of get through Africa and get down there. So there was nowhere I wanted to stop because I was just... It wasn't a holiday, mate. It was like, right, I'm going to get here. I'm going to see this. I want to experience this. And then I'll get on the overnight bus because that's going to save me $3 in accommodation. So my $8 bus ticket is really only $5 because I've got my accommodation. I just move on, move on, move on, move on. And the next thing, it becomes addictive to the point where you almost want to see everything there is to see, which I had a fair crack at. So why would you come home? Why would you come back to the, right, I'm going to start filling in my resume to try and get a job for a job that I don't want to do. Uh, well, I mean, a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I think there would be a fear of what, if I, if I don't ever get back to the real world, like, yeah, I know this is not your, no. your uh, here's what I will say. I'm just going to use an example. This is not your area and I apologize to your dad and my dad, if he's still listening, but, um, you know, the world of drugs and stuff, not your, your no. cup of tea, but like. In in that world, like particularly the psychedelic world, people who experiment with ayahuasca or DMT and those sort of things, those journeys, there's there's an element of that where you go, oh, this is great, it's opened my mind, you know, now I have all these new perspectives. And then there's the people who become, oh, no, this is all I'm going to do. I'm just going to yeah. live in this world yeah. and now I am no longer connected to the real world at all. And um, then yeah. there's a point where you are that person almost forever that you can't be reconnected to the world because you've seen too much and you know too much and you your perspective is so much broader than everybody else's that who do you even relate to? You hit it right on the head there. I'll say two things about that. Firstly, my uh, life of drug experiences, not a topic I thought had come up in this conversation. I had half a hash cookie in Nkata Bay in Malawi and (laughs) this Israeli guru. So I've, you know, I've been in Colombia where you could choose literally in Colombia Three bucks to get in the door, that gave you three lines or two beers. I was a bloke choosing the two beers, okay? So that's how straight I am. So I'm with this loose cannon from Tel Aviv, and he's like, man, you've got to have one of these hash cookies on. It's not my guy. It's not going to. And he cooks it up, and I said, all right, give me two bites. And I just remember, mate, I just remember being so paranoid that the Malawian coppers were going to knock on the door of my room and grab me, that I was that sore when I woke up in the morning because... 
I was grabbing onto the side of the bed, grabbing onto the side of the bed, thinking if I get up, they're going to arrest me. So all I wanted to do was go to sleep. And I see this bloke the next morning. He's like, oh man, what about those cookies? I was like, mate, all I wanted to do was go to sleep. He's like, man, all I wanted to do was stay awake, brother. <laughs> that's, that's the opposite to where I am. So I, I, what you say about disconnected, I think what eventually brought me home, mate, is because I saw people that couldn't relate to people anymore because they'd had such a unbelievable adventure filled, selfish, do what you want when you want existence that they, you'd talk with them and they would just tell you about all their experiences and it'd become quite dull and they couldn't, they'd lost complete connection with what people call the real world. So at that point it was probably time I started to feel I would never dominate a conversation, but I could start to feel that I was struggling to relate to things. Well, there's that theory that if you feast every night, you're never feast, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the kind of too much of a good thing or that, or whatever it is. Um, before we come back to the real world, let's spend a little bit more time in you, this. You want to go back to Columbia, don't this you? Fantasy you, world. you? You weren't choosing the beers, were you? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you could probably get both, right? <laughs> in Columbia. For six bucks. You're probably good. Because <laughs> the late gonna, 90s. You know what, mate? I'll buy two tickets. <laughs> I've, I've watched Narcos now. With my wife. I'd, I'd be the guy going in and going, no, I haven't been in yet. No, here's another three bucks, mate. I've seen Narcos with Eric and she's like, were you in Columbia then? I was like, yeah. She said, geez, that must have been wild. I was like, oh, I didn't really see that much of the existence of that in Columbia, but I think everyone else did. I was living in uh, Carlton when the underbelly stuff was going down. <laughs> right. That's as you, close as... You didn't have a shooter in your back pocket? <laughs> wasn't what you were doing? Didn't know Carl Williams? No, nah, fair enough. So and I wasn't hanging out with Pablo either in Columbia. Uh, what was... Do, can you identify... A, what you think the, the best experience that you had was like, is there one thing that, you know, if you, if you could do one, yeah. Okay. Let me ask you that first. What do you think the best experience was? The best experience was seeing the mountain gorillas in Rwanda. One, because of the mountain gorillas, but two, for the experience to get there. I think that's what you learn when you travel, mate. It's not often about the destination. It's the journey to get there. And it was, you know, it was, as I said, it was 1996. Rwanda had been through a terrible time. And the country, I'd spent a lot of time getting there to Uganda to see the gorillas and uh, in the national park there, they were on the other side of the border in Rwanda. And without going too far into it, you couldn't access Rwanda, but I managed to, um, through some financial persuasion, get into Rwanda. And I went up with some, with a, with a guy from Perth, didn't speak the language. The only way he could get up there was to go with the local military. And we went up there and they took us up there and they said to us, if we see actual gorillas, we're not talking mountain gorillas now, we're talking about gorillas from the Congo or poachers, you're going to have to hit the ground because there'll be trouble, um, which thankfully we didn't. And to sit for an hour with these mountain gorillas, people listen to this and say, oh yeah, but to sit with them and have the little gorillas running around you and the silverback you know, you have to look down at the ground. I can still picture it. You, you can't make eye contact with the, the male silverback. You look at the ground. You, you, you have a moment when you're in this rainforest in Rwanda, surrounded by mountain gorillas and local army folk, where you're like, I don't think life can get too much better than this. Like, this is adventure. This is living on the edge a little bit. You're surrounded by nature. It was outstanding outstanding and I hope my kids get to I hope my kids get to do things like that yeah it was so cool mate it was so cool 
uh, was there, uh, uh, there must have been, well, I mean, you've explained so many of them already, but was there times when you genuinely feared for your life? Only once. And that's oh, why really? I came only home. once? Yeah, only once. And that's why I came home. I was involved in a bus accident in Johannesburg. Um, my parents don't know this story. Um, I was involved in a bus accident in Johannesburg and it was a local minibus and I was packed in the back. I was the only white guy on the bus and it was a serious accident. Someone in the front of the bus mm. uh, passed away and the coppers abused me for being a white man on black transport, which, so we're talking 1996. So apartheid had fallen, thankfully, but it was a country that was still coming out of that repression, I guess it'd be fair to say. And I was pretty shaken up by that. And then I went into Johannesburg and I had to get a bus to Durban. Uh, and I thought, oh, I've only got four or five bucks in my pocket, four or five rand, because it's known as a dangerous area. I left my bag in the terminal. And this is not, again, not a story that I generally tell. I didn't expect to be telling it to you. And I came back, I got something to eat and I was walking back to the bus station and a guy jumped out. Uh, I can't, they call it Dugger in South Africa at the time. It was a form of drug. You could see he was really high on drugs and basically held a gun to my head and said, give me all the money you've got. And I can remember clearly thinking, Will, I don't have any money. Is this guy going to shoot me because I don't have any money on me? And I said, mate, take my belt, take my shoes, or my thongs. And not wearing shoes nearly cost me in that particular situation. And I can clearly remember, like it was yesterday, the noise of him cocking the pistol and putting it to my head. And I remember it, it was, wasn't, there was no time to be scared. It was just the simple, clear fact, wow, if I had 20 bucks in my pocket, this wouldn't be happening. And he did what they generally call in the paper, pistol whipping. So thankfully he didn't shoot me. He whacked me across the side of the head with his gun um, and split me open. And I went back to the bus station and I was in shock. So I'd vomited all down myself and I had blood all over myself. And I rang mum and dad and they still wouldn't know today that that was the conversation that I was having. But they were just like, I just wanted to talk to someone. Did the old reverse charges from the Janusburg bus station. <laughs> and I think at that point it was like, right, it's probably time to come home. Um, so I always got a little bit of money in my wallet now, just in case. Yeah, didn't expect that, did we? Uh, so you come home. Yeah. <laughs> You've been on this boy's own adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living the life that people imagine that they will one day live for two weeks at a time in retirement or, mm. you know, do their local version of it, which is get a caravan and you know, go around Australia <laughs> but or whatever. I respect but, that. Yeah, but that's an adventure. I mean, it goes to that same spirit. It's relative. You know, like, I mean, a lot of people go, when they get that caravan at 70 and decide to drive around Australia, it's, it is connecting with that same spirit of exploration that, that you were you know, connecting is. with in that combi van. Of course it is, brother. And so what it imagined, like I... Often in the old days when I used to, you know, be more concerned, the new days of the internet where I was more concerned with, you know, what people, you know, thought of you or what they were saying to you, you know, mm. I, I, if somebody's like, you know, you're shit at your job, you know, you should stop doing this. The thing that I would always want to write back to them, even though I, I, I never would, but I would want to write back to them is like, mate, even if I am shit at my job, I've done this job long enough now that I can't do anything else. Mm. Like I have seen... I've seen the life that I've lived and the world 
the job that I have and the, the thrill that it is and what it is that it's stand up can be a little bit like what you described about surfing, which is that it's unmasterable, you know, but even, you know, if you're not the greatest surfer in the world, occasionally, if the wind and the waves yeah. and whatever in the right spot for that moment, you can be the best surfer in the world. Like just, even if it's for that second, you know, if Mick Fanning was watching that and gone, Oh wow, that's like a, and I've seen because you, I've seen you do that. Yeah. I've seen you be that man. So, but then you're ruined. Yeah. There's another part of that. The downside to that is like, well, how do I go back to the real world now that I've seen that? And you did that on a, at least I get to kind of, I've incorporated that into my job and stuff and there's pros and cons to that. But you, you had this great adventure and then you have to come back and, and, and go back into the real world. Did you find that a difficult transition? Yeah. Probably the most difficult thing I've done in my life. I landed in Perth and I was like, right, I'm going to hitchhike home. And the Hawks were about to merge with Melbourne. And I went to a Save Hawthorne meeting and Don Scott spoke about, you know, we need your contributions to save the footy club. And I reckon I had, I don't know, 400 bucks to my name. I'm in Perth. I got to go to Melbourne and I gave them $75, which is only $75, but it was about 35% of my entire net wealth. Um, which I thought was a bloody good effort. So, you know, if I was Bill Gates, I'm putting serious coin in. Yeah. Yeah. If everyone else had done that, we would have become the San Diego Chargers or Manchester United. (laughs) Um, yeah, hitchhike home, got home. And then I can't tell you how long it was for. It was probably a year. It was, um, maybe eight months. Yeah, it wasn't. I was applying for a series of jobs that I didn't want. So what were you applying for? Okay. I was applying for the marketing manager of, because I'd done a business degree right. in sports management. I was applying for the marketing manager of table tennis, Victoria, or an assistant to the assistant of the assistant for basketball, Western Victoria. And I couldn't get any of those jobs. Thankfully, thankfully, thank heavens I didn't. And, and my dad, he, he got a little bit uptight about it because he's like, well, what are you going to do now? And all I would do was try and go through the process of, in theory, looking for jobs in the paper as they were at that stage, applying for them, not wanting to do them and go surfing on the weekends. That was my escape then. Because the weird thing is, in some ways, to everybody else, like, I mean, not to everybody else, but to those who are at home while you're off having these adventures, um, it, it almost feels like those years have been wasted when it comes to deciding what to yeah. do next. Yeah. Whereas the truth of it is that you're probably the most qualified candidate for any of, I mean, lucky you didn't get the jobs, any job, but after the experiences that you've had, what can happen to the office photocopier or what, what issue can go down it after you've, you've got yourself across the border in Rwanda. That's right. Yeah. You've sat with gorillas. Is there an issue that's going to come up at table tennis, Victoria, that you think you're not going to be capable of staring in the face? But apparently the people at table tennis, Victoria (laughs) thought there was, and you're right. I was probably the most resilient, um, self-reliant, a uh, purposeful 22 yeah. year old on the planet. I mean, and talking about businesses that need to survive, <laughs> like, you know, we, we need to survive on in an economical way. Oh, I'm that's fine. Man. I went through Africa with $9. <laughs> that's right. I'm your man. I'm your man. If you want to take the trip away to Warrnambool, yeah. I'll tell you what, I can show you how to do it for $18. We can get this budget together. <laughs> for 30 of us. And we'll win this bloody tournament because you won't give in. So I think you're right, mate. But they, they weren't jobs I wanted to do. No. Um, and that was the only time probably um, 
in my life where things haven't been flying and it didn't go for that long and I got through it. Did you feel, I mean, you dismiss it really quickly and that's probably part of your worldview, but do you remember ever kind of that, uh, that unwavering sense of self kind of like your positivity wavering around that? I remember, I remember I was speaking about this to someone the other day. I remember getting all the, you failed letters. We don't want you for an interview. And I don't know, it was 30 or 40 of them and putting them on my wall with blue tack. But that wasn't a motivational thing. That was just like, I don't know why I did that. Really. It was probably just, I don't know. Just keep pushing on. Just keep pushing on. They can't all say no to you, I guess. So it wasn't an amazingly positive time, but you never know what's around the corner. So what happens? What happens after this? Well, bloody Timmy Harris from Dumbolt North (laughs) on my travels, I let him run wild for two months. I said, right, I'm going to go through the Middle East. I'm going to do Syria, Jordan, and go and see the pyramids. I'll see you back in Amsterdam to get our flight home that I spoke to you about earlier on. Bloody Timmy Harris meets Anna, our hottie from Northern Argentina. And decides in the two months that she's the one for him. I go off traveling around through Africa. He lives in England, goes back to Argentina, meets the folks, ring me. I'm doing a six week contract at the Australian Grand Prix. So I'd finally got a job in that field. Um, I got that job because I sent in an application and told them, Will, that I sent it to the event manager that I'd worked at the Calgary Stampede in Canada, which is a big event and, and it's something pretty good on your resume. I'd been to Calgary. Mm. Not when the stampede was on. Well, technically, I'm more qualified then because I've been to Calgary while the stampede was on. Still didn't work at it, but at least I was there while it was on. I certainly (laughs) didn't work at it. And I've been told since by the bloke that gave me the job that that's why he gave me the job. So I lied and lied well and got the job. So Timmy, he... uh, Another advantage of the pre-mobile phone era. (laughs) That's exactly right. And uh, resilience. Timmy rings me. He says, mate, I'm getting married in Argentina in four weeks' time. I want you to be my best man. I'm like, mate, I've got 800 bucks in the bank. I'm cooked here. Australian Grand Prix comes along, March. Uh, second year it was in Melbourne. I think Jacques Villeneuve won it, but that's a story for another day. Beat his teammate, Damon Hill. But again, I digress. The next Grand Prix. I did tell you we don't edit the podcast, but if you <laughs> keep talking about motor racing, I'm going to have to edit people things have, out. People have gone, yeah. This is bad enough to get to this point. <laughs> so the next Grand Prix is in Brazil, and the one after that's in Argentina. And I'm thinking, right, I need to get on this Grand Prix caravan, yeah. and then I can get to Timmy's wedding. So I pester the. See, I, I can't remember that if I ever knew that. That no. the reason that you traveled with them no. was to get to a wedding. No. So you were just like, oh, this is great. you guys are going to. Yeah. Oh. Well, I guess I'll jump on board this if it'll get me to Argentina. I still remember coming home from the three years of it and going, meeting some friends from school and someone saying, oh, we heard you're a Formula One mechanic. I'm like, I'm not. I'm not working on the nuts and bolts on Chewy's car. I mean, so, based on your Calgary stampede. Yeah, I, I, mean, was dri- you, I was driving the thing. Out, yeah, driving. And we used to say yeah. that too. So <laughs> convince them if I flew to Sao Paulo in Brazil, which is a massive city, 20 plus million people, which I'd been to before. They would let me work for five days, pulling camera cables around the Interlagos track and then go to my friend's wedding and then go to the Argentinian Grand Prix. I got on a plane. I spent my money. I think I lent some money from mum and dad, got the plane ticket over there, worked at both the Grand Prix, went to Timmy's wedding, went to Columbia um, because I didn't want to go home because I was going back to applying for the jobs at Table Tennis Victoria who didn't think I was qualified. They hadn't paid me all the money, the pommies. And they owed me some money. And so I rang them from Bogota back to London 
to say, oh, can you put that money in my bank account? Because I will need some money here in Colombia to go and buy my beers at the mm. pub that I'm not getting cocaine at. And they said, they said the boys you work with who are all tough English truck drivers, all about 40, said you worked hard. If you can be in Monaco in, it was like five or six days time, we'll give you a full-time job. So I flew home. Broke mum and dad's heart. Told mum over her beautiful roast pork, genie pop, that I was going overseas again. Dad sat me down and said, mate, you've got to start a career at some point. Now's the time. And I said, yeah, I'm going to Monaco and join the Formula One circus. And it was a pretty good decision, I reckon, in the end. Well, it was a great decision it was better in than the table. end. It was better than Table, better than table, table Victoria. Victoria. Dad was flat on it, though. He was flat on it. He was like, Because he thought you were just going off to travel again rather he, than to... He thought I was escaping the problems mm. I had at home trying to get a job by going to take a job. He's like, mate, what career is he in there in pulling camera cables around Grand Prix tracks? And I hope I will not say the same thing to my son if he brought that to the table with me, but give me another 15 years and conservatism as you get older. Maybe I will. I hope I won't, but I completely understand why dad said that. Well, this is why I want to explore kind of what happens from here on and how you've kind of gone from pulling cables at the, you know, at the Grand Prix to like literally having the most popular sports, you know, podcast in Australia and one of the most popular in the world, having a great career as, you know, like a, a sports commentator across, you know, you know, various forms of media now, you know, and across various sports, but at this stage, you're a guy who travelled the world for three years and now is pulling cables at the Grand Prix so that you can get a ticket to your mate's wedding. Yeah. How does how does that, with you know, with your dad going, how is this going to turn into a career? Well, let's answer your dad's question and the people's questions that are out there. How does that turn into a career? I told you at the start by just saying yes. Everything that was put in front of you, I just said yes. So can you pull the camera cables? Yep. Can you learn to build the TV broadcast village? Yes. The interviewer is sick for the week. We need someone to fill in who wants to do it. I'll do it. And from there, you know, I interviewed Michael Schumacher. I told someone this story the other day at a Ferrari launch. Asked him a question. I was the first one to get up in front of 200 people. It was the first time I've ever had to interview anyone in my life. And because I work for Bernie Eccleston, I would be the designated asker of the first two questions. And I asked Schumacher this question, some inane question. It's the launch of Ferrari. You see it all go around the world. They rip the scarlet top off the Ferrari. And I asked him the first question, the great Michael Schumacher. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't understand your accent. I was like, okay. I asked him a second question. He said, I still don't understand your accent. (laughs) That was it. That was my first official interview. (laughs) She was a pretty rough start, Wilbur. (laughs) Wasn't exactly pointing me towards the Howie Games at that point. Or commentating on the Boxing Day Test match. You know what it is, though. <laughs> if, if we ever make like the movie of your life, this yeah. is Farlap being shit on the first run. <laughs> yeah, really you know, shit. you know, this, shit. Is like, this, this is getting stuck in the starting is, gates. This is Steve Smith being picked as a leggy <laughs> right. and batting at eight. That's right. You know, that's, that's right. So she was a rough start. Um, Again, though, I mean, and look, uh, I come back to it because it, it, it's part of the theme of what the podcast is and part of the theme of clearly what your story is. But you treat it with. And a self-assured, well, this is just how I am and this is what I did. But there would be a lot of people hearing that going, they finally got their moment, you know, M&M style. Yeah. You know, they've been walk, working behind the scenes and they finally have this moment where they get to ask, you know, the, the first two questions at the press conference and you've literally just like, neither of them are gone. What made you go, well, I'm, but, but okay, I guess I'm going to try this again. Well, because that was done. So I couldn't control that. 
that was done. Right. That's what we talked about at the start. I couldn't control it. So it's like, if I get another opportunity, um, I'll just plug away and try again. So I did and I did and I did, and I had a lot of support along the way. Came back to Australia, got some opportunities and did all sorts of stuff, mate. Like I'm talking asked questions of Red Bull air race pilots, of swimmers, of gymnasts, of tennis players, of croquet players, of table tennis players, of areas and jobs that I had no understanding of. Can you produce this? Can you direct this? No idea. But you just, if you keep saying, there's always someone that knows how to do it. So if you go and find the person that knows how to do it and ask them the question, then hopefully you can get to the point where you can just get through. So you start asking people questions yep. for a living. Yeah. I mean, you know, in general, both off air and, yep. you know, it, it will eventually become to a certain degree, you know, what you do on air as well. Sure. Do Did you, what, what's your first point of curiosity when you talk to somebody? I mean, the reason that I have this podcast is that I would just love to, I'm not great with small chat. I'm a ter- like, I'm a bit shy at parties. I'm a bit socially awkward in, in sort of groups and stuff like that. You know, I like stand up cause it's a controllable space, you know, here, like I always find it funny when somebody's like, Oh, I loved your show. We should catch up. I think we'd have a lot. I'd be like, Oh, you don't want to now mm. that's, that's what you want to say. The rest mm. of the time, I'm, you know, you don't want to hang out with me. I get that. Um, I, so this podcast I get to do because I get to have the conversations I want to have with people, which is, you know, about what life is, is really about. So that's my place that I start with curiosity a lot of the time. Where do you start? What's the thing that you want to know from people first and foremost? What they did when Michael Schumacher didn't answer their two questions. I think what they did when it went wrong and they didn't give up. So Everyone that's achieved has had a point where they're at the lowest, where they didn't think they could achieve. That fascinates me. And I don't care whether it's Ricky Ponting or a builder or an Amiz or a plumber. Everyone has got to the point in their life where it's like, I'm not going to be able to make this. But a lot of people do. A lot of people don't. And it fascinates me about that decision, I think. And to sit there and chat with truly elite people about how they overcome it's outstanding. As a spin-off of the podcast, we've offered a situation where we do a podcast with, for want of a better term, normal people. And I've sat there in the last year with however many, often older people. And if you've got to 50 in any form of life, you've done some amazing things and you've copped some massive wax. And I love to find out how people get through those things and continue to push on. Everyone, everyone, we're here at Triple M today. You take 40 people out there, all of them have got a story that will blow your socks off. And to to get a grasp of that story and be in a position where someone trusts you enough to tell you that story is the best part of my job by far and away, which I'm sure this is why you do this show. I, uh, yes, but I also think that insight that, that everybody has a fascinating story is one that we overlook so often. My next door neighbor, Phil, has been on this podcast, uh, but one day I was just talking to him about his life and it turned out that he'd, you know, ridden a, you know, a penny farthing around Australia for the bicentennial. And it turns out he was telling me the other day, uh, he's just off on another adventure with his wife. And, uh, so I popped over for a cup of tea in the afternoon, you know, literally just the, you know, you guys are going away for a while. We'll just have a catch up, you know, cup of tea. So anyway, you and he, I think are very, would be very kindred spirits because he was telling me again, we did a podcast together where I asked him about interesting things he did in his life. 
This didn't even come up in the podcast. Right. This was just, we got onto some topic and then eventually this story just came out. He didn't rate the penny farthing. Oh no, the penny farthing came up. Right. This is what didn't come up. Oh. He, he went on the only ever walking safari through Africa. Cool. Like, you know how they do them in the cars and nice. with the gut, like yes. whatever. But they, at one stage were like, I wonder if we could just do this walking, you know, <laughs> with a group of people walking. Sounds high risk. Yeah. Sounds so like turns, my go. Yeah. It turns out after the first one, they were like, probably shouldn't. <laughs> Took 18, the come way back that with we 12. Had, the way that we had to keep running away from lions and, you know. We lost being, six along the way. Being charged by hippos. and Because that's what they did. Yeah. You know, it was out in the middle of this, you know, and it, it but it was pure, that, like you said, that one time that they got to do it. And he just, he was, and he was like you. He, he said, oh, well, I just saw an ad that they were going to do it. And I was like, I'd like to do that. Yeah, yeah it's, um. I think that's a low percentage business model, though. <laughs> Walking tours through the African wilderness. You may come home, you may not. He said, you learn a lot of lessons. Don't stand between a hippo and water. Yeah. Valuable lessons for general life, those. Don't approach a lion. Um, so tell me about then, how do we get to the, the Howie games? I mean, how do we get, how do you become, you know, Mark Howard, cricket commentator, football commentator, sports journalist? Yeah, I never wanted to be any of those things. I never really even considered them. Like, we used to play cricket and footy at school. Uh, it's not like I'd sit around commentating it. I mean, the funniest thing about it all is that you you almost have the perfect job, but in no way did you... No. It doesn't seem like you aimed for that perfect job. Never. Never considered You were it. never that kid who's... Like, we all love sitting around talking about football and, and cricket and, you know, playing, joking about those things and playing those things. But it wasn't like... I can't, I think, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in my memory, I always had an, like, a, I didn't know what it was that I necessarily wanted to do, but I was doing things at school, whether they be like the school play or theater sports or things that clearly like there was something within me that was like, there's something in this area over here that appeals to me that I'm going to, yeah. but I, I, it's funny that you have got to this point where I'm going, well, it feels so natural on you. Like what you do for a living now feels like what it was always, what you were meant to do, but you've got there in such a non-linear fashion. One thing about school, people won't realize, I got 93% in year eight Japanese. You sat next to me in year nine, <laughs> Japanese, and I got 37%. What, what do you say? I could have been one of the great linguists of this time. Could have. A second thing about yeah. school. I'd like to think that was because we were having such a, an entertaining time. We should have been doing Japanese. Each other. We should have been doing our katakana and our hiragana and our kanji, but we weren't, Will. Second thing for those joining this show, we did a year 11 biology. Is it biology? Chemistry. Chemistry. You, if you're going yes. to talk yeah. about Wally Vermeulen. Year then... 11 chemistry together. Yeah. Oh, three weeks to You were known. You always used to, we used to sit next to each other. Again, chemistry. I did okay. By the time I got to year 11, I think I got 53%. Tell the audience, Will, what were you were known as by the teacher, Mr. Vermeulen, in our chemistry class? Wally Vermeulen. He yes. was, he's Canadian originally. He was Canadian originally. He still and, is Canadian. Well, I mean, I'd, if he's still with us, yeah, yes. I hope he is. Uh, but Mr. Vermeulen, Wally Vermeulen, yes. uh, he, he used to, this is what I remember about him. He used to talk about peanut butter sandwiches a lot. He did. He used to reference Degrassi Junior High. Wake up in the morning, feeling tired and lonely. Gee, I got to go to school. Good show. Uh, 
And for one whole year. <laughs> whole year? He I don't mean the first term. One whole year. Despite the fact that he was teaching a class of, <laughs> I guess, 24 or 26 people maximum. Budding chemists. Had no idea what my name was. Okay. In fact, referred to me only for an entire year as you, you, Mr. Howard's friend. <laughs> One whole year. Mr. Howard's friend. Mr. You, you. Pay attention. Mr. Howard's friend. Mr. Howard's friend. I think your report you. was. Why are you late? Your report was Mr. Howard's friend. <laughs> Mr. Howard's friend. <laughs> so Sorry, I digress. No, there, I, there was no plan. I... I just kept saying yes to things that I had no idea about. I was working at seven uh, as a producer, which I was okay at. I wanted to get into reporting. They didn't think that was my go, which is fair enough. Channel. This is a perfect example of saying yes. Channel 10, through a great man called Murray Lomax and David White, offered me a two part-time jobs at Channel 10 that would make a full-time job. Neither, which was producing. They were both reporting. One was being a news reporter, so I had to do 55 days in the newsroom. I'd never been in a newsroom. I knew nothing about newsrooms. The other was because I'd worked on the Formula One circuit, pulling camera cables, they thought I knew about cars. So I'd be the pit lane reporter on the V8s. And they said, can you fill both those roles? I was like, yeah, of course I can. Just say yes. Got to the first V8 event. Someone had a problem. Paul Radisic with his car blows up into the pits. I don't know anything about it. I know as much about it as you do. And Neil Crompton, who's a very, very established V8 commentator, Froze down. Let's go down to Mark Howard in the pits for an update. Well, there's an issue with the car. (laughs) (laughs) And there seems to be a problem. I'd ask someone. They said there's a problem with the oil line. I said there's an oil line issue. And Neil Crompton, in what was probably pretty ungenerous broadcasting, when I look back Mm. on it now, said there's a lot of oil lines in the car, Mark, which is the specific problem. I don't think he wanted me doing the job because I didn't know anything about it, which is fair enough. So, you know, he took me apart on air, but that was an example of just saying yes. So I went through the newsroom, got into sport, just kept saying yes to all these things, travel and lifestyle, I'll have a go at it, sport, I'll have a go at it. And then Channel 10 got the big bash and a gentleman by the name of Big Dave Barham said to me, do you think you could commentate the cricket? And of course I said, get fucked. No, <laughs> oh, yes, yes, sorry. <laughs> I said yes at that yes. point. Okay. Yeah, sure. I said yes. I wasn't paying attention. But we, no. <laughs> so I, you know, I started commentating cricket. Yeah. But commentating cricket alongside people who, yeah, I mean, you and I, I mean, I remember us, you know, traveling down from the country yep. to, you know, to, to go and see sporting events, you know, going to see Alan Border, you know, you know, play cricket. Uh, you know, the first time I ever went to a grand final was 89 with you. You know, and your family. I still look back on that, actually. I, I will say, yeah, if if, uh, if your dad's made it this far into the podcast, <laughs> that uh, when you're a kid, you don't quite appreciate how cool it is yeah. that your parents, uh, your your friend's parents got tickets to the grand final. And, and the let grand one final. Of, like, well, and the, yeah, the greatest grand final of all time, yeah. you know, but got tickets to the grand final and let one of their dickhead kids' mates... <laughs> Go, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I look. I don't think I at the time appreciated how amazing an experience and opportunity that was to be, you know, to be included in that. Yeah, I guess when you look like that, again, we'll digress. Mm. Half time, we are Geelong. 
greatest team of all. You decided to change the theme song. We were surrounded by Geelong bikies. You sang. Uh, we are Geelong and we're a pack of knobs. Because <laughs> I was always pretty clever and insightful and satirical. As 14-year-olds, we nearly got taken apart by some Geelong bikies and could have missed the second half of the greatest grand final in the history of the game. We, and we used to go to the cricket, you know. I think that's where you first met Erica, my wife, yep. coming to the cricket. And I knew you'd be impressed because she knew the difference between mid-on and mid-wicket. And we would sit there at the Boxing Day Test Match, talking, doing the quiz, the sport quiz, and talking about cricket all day. I mean, there was a period of time in our lives where it was a genuine yearly catch-up Once for a year, that's we right. Would, no matter we, where we were, you know, whoever was in town... And there was kind of a core group, but there was a you know, floating amount of other people. Yeah. And you would try to make it to, to Boxing Day and, and watch the cricket. Genie Pops uh, ham and pork sandwiches from the day before. My mum would always make those. And we'd, it was just such a magical thing to go to that Boxing Day. We saw Justin Langer make 200 odds, which I've talked to him about on my the power podcast. Of passion. You were holding up his book every time. <laughs> he had a book called The Power of the Passion. And every time he hit a boundary, you'd hold it up and scream. Power of fashion. That's right. And then I would refer to other innings that he'd play <laughs> yeah, and right. read, and because there was English fans around us, that I would read excerpts of other, I bet he's using this technique right now and read a little bit. I know them. you never would, but please grab that part out of the Howie Games episode with Justin Lang and whack it in this podcast because I told him about that. He was thrilled. He was absolutely thrilled because he's a big fan of your work. Uh, You've well, got copyright. Well, okay. We should do that, Mike. Can we do that? I'm sure people come up to you and say, I was there on such and such a day. And I get to do this on this podcast. I can say to mm. Kathy Freeman, I saw you <laughs> run that day or um, to Greg Norman, I was watching you that day at the Masters. I- I'll never forget... Um, I went to school and was very good mates with a fellow by the name of Will Anderson, who has become a very, very, very funny man, one of Australia's best comedians. He had your book, The Power of the Passion. passion. The Power of oh. Passion. Yeah. So I think that came out in mid-2000s, um, and we were at the MCG on during the Boxing Day test, and you were smacking them everywhere. And every time you hit a boundary... Will would stand up and the top of his voice, hold your book aloft, power the passion, JL, power the passion, JL, every boundary you hit, my friend. Well, I didn't know. I am so pumped to hear the that. power of passion, JL. Uh, I remember. There's a couple of reasons I remember that. Not, I can't remember Will, obviously, but now that, that's another, that's tattooed into my soul that Will had that book there. Um, Good so, on you, Mikey. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, he's actually somebody that I would love to have on the, on oh, the show at some stage. Man. I think he'd be uh, exactly the and sort of person. he's got that, philosophies yeah. about life. Not like my crap ones about being positive. He's easier, deep, uh, deep thinker. So all of a sudden Ricky Ponting was there and Adam Gilchrist was there and Damien Fleming was there and Mark Wall was there. And I think that's where I learned my most valuable lesson is to understand your role and play your role. And my role, as told to me by my boss, Dave Barham, was to show people that Ricky Ponting wasn't like what you thought he was when he kept in Australia. That Mark Waugh wasn't aloof, even though he is. <laughs> <laughs> that Adam Gilchrist, he didn't have to do it with Gilly because Gilly was just a ripping bloke. But I think the main thing going into it, Ricky hadn't commentated. He hadn't not long been the Australian captain. And we saw him as a pretty hard, pretty gruff at times prickly with the media, he said, show the people that are watching that he loves the footy. He loves cricket. He loves a beer. He loves his family and he loves betting on the greyhounds, which he does during big bash games, which is quite an extraordinary skill. And I learned 
to just play my role. You're not going to go in there, Will, as a bloke that's taken wickets for the tyres under 14s or sat with you at the Boxing Day test and give your opinion to these legends of the game. You just ask them what they think and relax them as much as you can and paint them in the best possible light that you can because it eventually reflects on the product and then eventually comes back to reflect on you, I think. But you're right, mate. To me, to sit there on Boxing Day last year and sit beside Shane Warren, Adam Gilchrist and Kerry O'Keefe and call the Boxing Day test match on television, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make me emotional. It just amazes me that I could be given that opportunity from everything we've talked about to get to this point. I used to sit in the outer with you eating my mum's sandwiches. If you'd said to me, in 10 years' time, you're going to be calling the first day of this cricket and you're going to be wandering around on the ground beforehand talking to the main combatants as you please. That's a million to one, five million to one, 10 million to one. It's pretty cool. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to try to word it in a way that, um, cause what, I, okay. I'll just try to say what I'm trying to say. Okay. You and I sat together at high school. We mm. sat together at a whole bunch of sporting, we're, we're a couple of kids from Gippsland. You know mm. what I mean? Like not born under a star, you know, in a manger, you know, clearly what, you know, the story you've told of getting to where you've got to, it wasn't some sort of, you were identified at high school to be like in some elite you know, sports commentator, you know, academy <laughs> and groomed through the years and mentored. And I could have been a Japanese guru, but feels, feels you, you stuff well, that right yeah, up. That is the one. Well, that, that, no worries. But you help me because yeah. I could have been the ambassador for Japan. Exactly. Or, you know, at least, or at least, you know, working for, I don't know, at Table Tennis Tokyo. <laughs> so. Who are a lot more elite, by the way, than the Victorian operation that said no to me. Yeah. Well, if you had had the Japanese, <laughs> That's right. that would have got you across but the line. 33% in year nine doesn't really get you there. <laughs> uh, so uh, for the record, we also had a teacher in Japanese who did not understand daylight saving. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Do you remember every year when they would change the clocks to daylight saving? She wouldn't rock up to class because she hadn't adjusted her clocks. No, but she was good at Japanese. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, both of us have, you know, like lived lives that neither of us could have imagined Mm. that we were going to live. In the same way as I went and when I was, you know, 17 and went and watched Billy Connolly with my mum and sat in that room and, and looked at all those people and just like, was like, oh, I can't imagine that this guy just like stands in front of like thousands of people. And like, I never would have, that would have been like me watching, you know, Alan Border or yeah. watching what, and going, that could be me. I never imagined that that could make me, but now that is, you know, what I do for a living. Do you think that we are too limited in our expectations of what we allow kids to dream about because neither of us were encouraged or does it not matter because neither of us were encouraged to do things like that. I always think the, the, the limits that school or society or your parents or whatever put on you, are we, are we too hard on like you kind of adjusting our kids expectations of what they can achieve? Or is that like a necessary thing for you to go? No, no. The fact that your dad was like, ah, I'd prefer if you were back here and having a job. It was something that kind of made you go, no, this is me and I'm going to live my life how I need to live my life. Yeah. It's a really good question because it's now the most important role in my life is being a dad by the length of the straight. I think you're shaped by your experiences. I don't think you should 
there's two theories to it. You, you know, you tell your kids you can do anything, but I think you've got to give them the tools to possibly get there to do anything. So if your daughter wants to be an Olympic triathlete, you need to explain to her that it's not all just standing on the podium and holding up medals. You've got to train really, really hard to do it. If your son wants to be a rocket scientist, he's going to have to do maths and physics and chemistry. I don't think the big penguin, my seven-year-old, is going to be a rocket scientist, by the way. But it's a, it's a really good question. He I, might be one of those guys they put on The Bachelor and say he's a rocket scientist, <laughs> even though he works at a bank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope he doesn't work in a bank. <laughs> and that's my prejudice is coming through now. That'll well, break so my heart. I guess that was, but that was where I was leading, was that idea of, you know, sometimes you do things despite what yeah. your parents were like. I mean... I'm nothing like, I mean, you know, my dad, it's not like I have followed in the footsteps of my father in life, but I feel like I was very well prepared and supported and all those things by them. I really do. Like, I feel like I've been able to do what I've done because that, you know, they, they raised me, you know, in the way that I was raised and it's come to this. I don't have any resentment for that, but when you're a parent yourself Mm. and you're for like, yeah, you've enjoyed all these things and you want your kids to enjoy all these things. What happens when they... Yeah, because they're not going to love everything that you love, and they're no. going to have their own interests and own things that like, maybe, maybe you will want to work in a bank. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe there is that day where he's like, "Well, you know, I'm really passionate about the financial industry, and I'm I want to be a Wall Street trader and make millions of dollars." And yeah, you know, oh, it's a really good I question. I want to wear a suit to work every day, yeah, Dad. Oh, in a it. massive "fuck you" to you, <laughs> your thong wearing, yeah. board short wearing embarrassment. Well, I'm in that beautiful spot at the moment where they're nine and seven and everything I do is right. Everything I do is perfect. Everything I do is true. We're lucky financially that we've, we don't spend money on fancy cars and houses. We take them to places. So as young kids, they've been to South Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Costa Rica, Panama. We're taking them to Guatemala shortly. So I'm trying to instill that sense of adventure in them because I want them to be adventurous and I want them to be curious. I'm trying to show them what life, how you need to be resilient because they use the word in school, but they don't ever show it because you can't keep the footy score or if you come seventh, you get a medal. So there is no resilience in our school system the way I see it. So I'm trying to, with my wife, instill resilience in them. How? By, How do you do that? Just by, by putting them in situations correct. where they're not comfortable? So the plane got cancelled to Bocas del Toro in Panama from San Jose in Costa Rica, we've got two hours to figure out how we're going to get there. Oh, this seems like a disaster. We're not going to be able to get there. Oh, hang on. There's a bus. Don't worry about all the things you can't control. The plane's not going. We can't do There's no use sitting around whinging about the plane not going. We can look forward. Okay, there's a bus. It's going to take longer. We're going to do this. And they get there. At the end of the day, they're like, oh, gee, we had that big problem, but we overcame it. If I can leave them with that, then I don't really care what they do. As long as they're nice to people, um, as long as they're happy, I'd love for them to be adventurous. I'd love to them to live what I would consider a life less ordinary, but it's up to them to choose, I guess. But I, mate, I'm not at that point yet because still me and my wife are in that really sweet spot of them thinking we're fantastic. I wish I could stop them at this point because I, I don't know how it'll get when they get older. Like I see some teenagers that are terrible. I don't think you or I were terrible teenagers. I see others that have really open, honest relationships with their parents. Hopefully my kids have that with me. We we were, we didn't run amok per se. No. Know. Well, enough to learn what a mucky is. Yeah. But 
but not to but not yeah not to burn down the haystack like exactly. Sarah Bailey yeah. and, <laughs> and Ash Martin. But yeah, anyway. well, that, you know those guys who are you know now very established <laughs> in their lives will be say, really glad that you brought that there's up. There's a couple of blokes that burnt down their father's haystack, smoking. Yeah, and tried to say there was a spark. Out of the back of the motorbike when we started it, and that lit the barn on fire. Now, is, is Mr. Bailey ever going to believe that? Now, Sarah like, has, you know, a family of his own now. He's a responsible, <laughs> you know, he'd be wrapped that that's finally coming back up again, I'm sure. Who smokes cigarettes in a haystack? It's low percentage. I saw Ash, actually. Have right. you seen Ash? Because you, like... You guys were, because you guys were from a similar yeah, area, yeah. caught the, the bus. The same you know, bus up and down an hour each way. So I saw Ash and Penny actually uh, last Christmas, Christmas Penny before. Penny Beard slash Penny Martin. Yeah. Had a, a really nice catch up with them, up in, living up in Byron Bay Wrong. now. In well, Byron they, are they? Yeah. Smoking? Well, so, <laughs> they, I won't, again, I'm not going to give their <laughs> private business away on my I probably have. podcast, but yeah. um they had a, all I will say is that they had a life changing experience on travel. Right. And decided that, you know, to look at their life in a, yeah. in a different way. Yeah. Like, and, and, you know, again, I'm not going to betray someone else, but a very much a story of somebody going, Hey, we went to this place, we did this thing and it changed our whole perspective on how we should be living our lives. And they moved to Byron and they wanted to be in a more alternative place to live and raise kids and, you know, just, you know, live a different life to the life that they had been. Yeah, been it's, living so it's, it's a tempting decision. I think people face it all the time. So I, so we come back to that now. Yeah, because we've got to start finishing yep. as I like to do. But mm. it takes wind me, me up. That's takes right. me a bit of it. Well, it, that's because it, it takes me a little while to wind it up, Howie. So I need to. Okay, I need to point it out that we're at least starting to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, so it brings me back to that when you've experienced that life and you've lived that life that life of adventure. Mm. And I know what it's like. It's when I come back from, you know, spending 10 years living in America and touring everywhere and blah, blah, blah. And I come back to a, you know, five day a week, uh, you know, breakfast radio job. That's a good job. Like, I mean, you know, it's a. It's an I, elite job. It's a job that a lot of people would like to do. But also, you know, in regards to a job, it, you get, they pay you a heap of money. You get looked after really well. You get a whole bunch of opportunities that come with it, you know, you get access to all these things. And it's actually not, people always talk about, oh, early mornings. Yeah, it's early mornings, but you're also done early in the morning. You know, so it, there's a lot about that job that is is really great. And so many people, you know, want that next contract that'll be this many years or mm. this many years. And I get that because, you know, there, there's your security, you can plan, you can, mm. but it terrifies me a little bit because I like that idea that I can just go off and do something else. Yeah. And I often struggle with it. And I often find when I think that I'm anxious about the job, what I'm actually anxious about is the fact that I have a job, you know, like a job that I, you know, I've signed and I have all this responsibility. It prevents you doing things that you don't know what they are, but it could prevent you doing. Yeah. And I don't, I don't actually have any other plans, but I, I like the idea that I could make other plans. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer this next series of questions because I think I know where you're going. Well, so now that you're in this point where you, for the really, for the first time, yeah, in a serious way in your life. Yeah, it is. How are you? I just want to know how you're going. How are you adjusting to that? How are you dealing with that idea of like, how big a decision was it even to, to commit to, you know, to that? 
Because you're now in this brilliant sweet spot in your career and your life where, you know, your life is great, but you're, you know, really people have, people know you now, you have some real authorship over what you do. You've gone from being, you know, the guy who gets asked a question or two to yeah, being allowed to create and have a personality of your mm. own, to tell your own stories, to ask people the sort of questions that you want to ask people that only you would ask people rather than somebody else who was doing that same job would ask people. Mm. This is a really fantastic time in your life and your career. And it makes 100% sense that it would be stupid to step away from it right now. This is the time to lean in to this adventure that you're having. But I can imagine that despite all that, despite every sensible thing that I I've just said and every sensible, you know, reason and argument that you would make in your head or have with other people, there's still a bit of you that just, well, I just want to know how you feel. That bit appears uh, six times in a typical week. And it can be anything from something I see on TV to an Instagram post of someone that is living in Nicaragua and their kids are at international school and they're working in a local burger van. It can be someone I meet that says, have you been somewhere and I haven't been there? So it is a constant, but I was very privileged to be in a situation when Channel 10 lost the cricket to choose between a couple of jobs, which is the hardest decision I've ever had to make work-wise. And a couple of things, I joined Fox, who have been a fantastic organisation um, and was helped a lot through it by a gentleman by the name of Craig Kelly, who was very, very good negotiating it all. But we, with his help, we tried to create both lives, which is not an easy thing to do. I, I just got my roster to show you the, the, the perfect side of both these lives. I just got my roster for the cricket season, which has me doing... 59 days of cricket, which includes, which didn't last year, all five test matches, all the one day internationals, all the T20 internationals. So I get that. So I get paid whatever I get paid, no matter how many days of cricket I do. I had 59 days of cricket. The only thing that disappointed me in the slightest was it would have been better if it was 70 days of cricket. I don't get paid anymore, but the fact that I'm going to spend the summer and my family's getting to an age now where they can come with me a little bit, which is a real key. I'll get 59 days of sitting down with Shane Warne and Mark Warne and Adam Gilchrist and Michael Vaughan and Isha Gour and Mel Jones to talk about cricket. That's outstanding. That's, that's not a job. Like, give me 100 days. How good. But for, the, for the, the day after the AFL season finishes to the day before the cricket season starts, and then most importantly for me, the day after the Big Bash final to the day of the first AFL game, I don't have a contract that holds me anywhere. So that's a, that's a, they put some one day internationals in the middle of March versus the Kiwis will for the very first time. First time there's been one day internationals in March ever. So that cost me 10 days, um, which hurt. So what I'm saying by getting both sides of the equation, we're going on a, on a trip in Australia in October. Um, and we're very fortunate to be in this position and privileged, but through hard work and giving up, a lot of weekends and family time along the way, we'll spend four and a half weeks living that life that sometimes I think I'd like to live for the whole year round. So it's the best of both worlds, as best as it can be to still provide your kids a wonderful education, a grounding, all the things, a routine that kids need. 
but they they are they are that excited about going back to that part of the world, Central America, and the things they're going to get involved in. So they'll come home from school and they'll want to talk about the volcano we're climbing and they'll be looking at the Lonely Planet. They won't be playing Fortnite and stuff like that, which is, I guess, the answer to your question. It drags me the whole time, but equally work is so fantastic and it's provided such an experience for my family. And the other thing, Fox and a guy called Steve Crawley, which is probably the most important thing, mate, he said, whatever you need to do to make it work for your family, we'll make it work. And that's probably why I decided to join them and they've been fantastic ever since. So best of both worlds. Best of both worlds. Is there somewhere that you've never been that you still want to go to? Yeah, I've always wanted to go. I always wanted to go uh, horse riding across Mongolia. Um, I don't know why. Met a dude that did it again, that did it, sounded cool. Um, apparently they all they ate there is lamb. Uh, the capital of Mongolia is called Ulaanbaatar. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know how to spell it. But apparently you can go there and buy a horse for about 150 bucks, And the horses are pretty self-sufficient, which is good because I don't know a great deal about horses. <laughs> and you could ride across the Mongolian steppe. Um, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. There's a lot of places I'd like to go and surf. But, yeah, I can see. I don't know about the E-bomb, Mrs. Howie, but I can see the kids are pickle on the penguin at some stage in the next few years riding across the Mongolian steppe on horses. Imagine the resilience they'll learn doing that, Will. Yeah. What do you think you've learned asking people questions on your podcast? Because you get to have these style of conversations. And look, I, the thing that I, when people ask me about what my favorite episodes of this mm. are, the, the ones that always come to mind are times where somebody has said something that has, I've noticed that I've taken into my life. So one, some way of looking at something or some situation will arise and I'll be like, oh, that's very similar to what so-and-so was saying about. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, it's a bit similar to what you were saying today, but it, it, funnily enough, you mentioned the Andy Lee episode. So many people have had, you know, observations of that episode externally. But funnily enough for me, it wasn't a particularly uncomfortable thing to be going through because I was very happy. I thought ha- it was courageous I to was, invite him on. But I was very happy to have the conversation. I Like, I don't consider myself to be a person who hasn't made mistakes. So the idea of talking about those mistakes and, or, you know, even the idea that things that at the time you don't consider to be mistakes, but you get a different perspective later in life, which mm. I think that was an example of, you know, it's not like I felt like at the time I was doing anything wrong. I just, you know, wasn't considering somebody else's perspective on what was happening. So I'm very happy to have that conversation. But one of the things that he said in that podcast was about the idea of, you know, not, not taking on board other people's, yeah, he was talking about the idea of, you know, this is how I am, but not letting how much someone else is not living in the way that you want to live or, Mm. you know, doing things the way that you would do them to go, well, that's just the way they do things. And I have to, the only thing I can control is in this situation is how I react to how they're doing it. So if I end up getting upset and frustrated and whatever about it, that's been a really helpful, you know, piece of advice that I have taken into work situations, into private situations. I've caught myself thinking of that moment when I'm about to take on the emotional impact of somebody else, this thing, and instead gone, you know what? The only thing you can control here is how you react to this thing. You know, another one is I, I mentioned this very often on the podcast, but Carly Finlay, who was on the podcast, who we were talking about language and, you know, ableist language. And she was talking about how easily comedians in particular, but people in general use, you know, nuts and crazy and, you know, these sort of 
terms that you know, to her are incredibly offensive and we don't think about them in that way. And mm. I have every single time, no, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm perfect in not using that language, but I now absolutely notice when other people use it casually. And I also try to, she, she offered the word bananas and I have found bananas to be a brilliant substitute. Yeah. So now when I was about to say, ah, oh, this, this situation is crazy or this is nuts or whatever, mm. I will, I'll, I'll roll in bananas. And it actually has like a real nice mouthfeel. It's a fun word. Mm. Like makes people smile. Yeah. And so I remember those episodes because of those, they're not necessarily always the big revelation or the, sometimes they're just those little moments, little things that I take with me. Uh, do you have similar things out of doing the Howie games? Oh, it's probably, I've probably taken two or three things from it. I've gained a much greater understanding into battles with mental health, whether when you speak to athletes that have really suffered from it. And sometimes I don't know the right words to use around it, but I've learned a lot from it. I've learned that these are real people with mums and dads and brothers and sisters. So when they're written about or spoken about in the public sphere in a critical way, their mum will read it and it will hurt their mum or their sister will read it. So that's, um, so that was in the Andy Lee episode, the, the, the moment when I like, cause you know, I was, there's a part of me that was, you know, I was like, well, Hamish and Andy are fine. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like everything worked out for them. I yeah, think, yeah, you know, yeah. like they, they, we had that conversation, okay. but you know, like it didn't really, you know, doom them forever. But when Andy was telling me, you know, that he was talking to his mum and you know, she was like, what, you know, why does Will have a problem with you? I was like, oh yeah, right. That, that to me was, Hit time. that, yeah, is the one you go, fuck, I wish I'd, I wish I had my time over yeah. so that Andy Lee's mum didn't have to be thinking that. Yeah. And, and they're, they're people, you know, when you, when you talk about people's personal lives, about divorces or separations or the death of children, they're people. And I just, I always try and put myself in someone else's shoes where I'm broadcasting. It's not my role. And I've spent 20 years not giving an opinion because I haven't done it out in the middle. So why would I give an opinion? But I always keep in the back of my mind, how would this person and how would their family feel if they were listening to this? But the main thing I've taken away from it, mate, is... And the main thing, and I have, I have really put into my life or tried to, and especially instilled in my children as well, is that it's, you know, I've done 70 odd of these chats with truly elite people that have done everything they could in their sporting field. It's not the ones that are talented or the most skillful or the best coach or had the best opportunities that have succeeded. It's like, it's, it gets drilled into you, but it's true. It's the ones with the biggest work ethic that are the ones that become successful. So it's taught me that if you work, if you work, those that work hard will often achieve a lot more success. Sure. There's Ricky Ponting, who was always going to be Ricky Ponting. He was always going to be an elite batsman, but John, uh, John Aloisi and Amir's John Aloisi put us into the world cup. He wasn't the best soccer player in his family. His brother was and Amir's sister was better at a bike rider as a 15 year old. So, but John worked harder and Anna worked harder. So I think that's what I take away from it. Those that work hardest achieve the most, which is a great lesson to be able to try and instill in your kids. I think. What do you think happens when we die? Uh, yeah, it's a bit frightening, but I don't think anything, but let's not get onto religion. Um, a bit anti religion, to be honest. Um, so I don't think anything happens when you die. It's interesting because you would have seen probably more so like, you know, when some people say I'm not in, you know, I'm anti-religion, 
or I'm not into religion or, you know, it's not for me. I, I don't mind um, people that are like, good luck to them, but yeah. it's not my bag. No. And, but often that is only people that when they're saying that are mostly saying, I don't like one type of religion, the religion that I was raised in and is the predominant religion in my society. But you've seen religion all over the world. I have. Interesting. I've, I've seen the crappiest little towns in South America where people are living in cardboard boxes, literally, yet the church is resplendent. I've been to Israel, I've been to Syria, I've been to Jordan and heard both sides of the story there. You know, mate, I, I saw a bloke on the news the other night where the Victorian government's tried to put in a situation to protect children in confessionals and a senior member of the clergy come out and say, well, if someone tells me that they've done something unwarranted or unnecessary or illegal to a child in my confession, I will protect that confidence. Like, as a parent, how can you do that? Like, so I can't, yeah. Uh, what do you <laughs> hope that, um, what do you hope that people say about you when you no longer, how do you, how, yeah. This is not how will you be remembered, yeah. but if you could choose how you will be remembered, what would what would you choose that to be? Just as a good bloke, just a good bloke who tried hard and made people around him feel good. That'd be all I'd require. My wife has really taught me the the great talent of making people around you feel good. She tells people that they look lovely or she makes them feel good about themselves and you can just see people light up around it as a result of that. So she's probably taught me that. So yeah, probably just a good bloke. If someone is to compliment you about something, yeah. what, what is the compliment that actually makes you feel like, like, yeah, what is the one that makes you go, Oh, that's, that's geez, a great compliment. Geez, you're going to done a good job with your kids by the length of the straight. You and your wife have done a good job with your kids. Gee, your kids have got good manners or gee, they're polite or. Gee, they have a crack, yeah. Anything to do with your kids that's a compliment. Some come back the other way. <laughs> it's not such a positive. It's not such a positive. What's your greatest strength? Ah, I'm not to stress about things I can't control. I think that's a superpower. I yeah. think you, you probably have that. Do you, you, you recognise that you have that at a level that, yep. you know, everyone, anyone who's become, you know, had some success at what they do has at least an element they about do. them that makes them yep. exceptional. Yep. Yeah, suited to the job in whatever that what exceptional manner is. Yeah. And I, I do think that your, your attitude in that regard is, is a superpower. It sometimes gets tested, but I think mm. you just go back to that. It's been successful in the past. So yeah, no, it's, it's a definite strength. A if definite people strength. have a misconception about you, what would it be? Uh, they're just cause you're casual. Doesn't mean you don't work hard. I think like if you, if you roll up to the cricket in boardies and thongs before you get changed, have you prepared for the game? Well, you have, but just because you're casual doesn't mean you you don't want to do your best or you haven't prepared for it. Yeah. Is there an interviewee left on your wish list yeah. that you're just like, this is I I definitely want this person. Kelly Slater. Kelly Slater. I say. How many times have you asked? Oh, not that many. Like probably sixty. <laughs> <laughs> But directly, yeah. Um, I've messaged him on and off through the great Trevor Hendy, who came on the show and is very close to us both. So the last Rip Curl Pro at Bells, um, one of the greatest moments of my life, Will, I got four text messages back from Kelly Slater, which I wish I could frame. One of them was like, right, we're going to get this done possibly tomorrow. And then the surf was pumping and we didn't get it done. He's an elusive man. I'll get there though. I'll get there. 
Um, I'll get there. Yeah, Kelly Slater, I think. And the final question, which yes. is the standard final question, which yep. is the time machine question. Yep. Uh, you got a time machine. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a one trip though. Right. Return trip though. Okay. Return trip. So I get to come back. Get so to come back. Michael J. Fox style. In yeah. fact, the the fact that you come back is important to Good. it. Good. Uh, so I prefer if you are going to. When I ask this, I'd prefer you travel to a moment in your own life. Okay. So a moment in your own life that you either get to observe. Yeah. Or a moment in your own life that you get to have a do-over and have a second crack at it. However, yep. I offer the opportunity that if you don't want to answer it that way, no. um, it, you can go back to a, a point in history. Can I but, do both? Very yeah, briefly. I would love if you did both. A point in history, I'd love to be on the docks in England or Spain or the Netherlands in the mid-1600s when a bloke saying, right, yeah, the map only goes this far. We need a cabin boy to go on this ship. I'm that man. Like to me, to be on that ship when you go past Tahiti and you don't know what's next and you get around the corner and you're the first person to see that place. Oh, that's me. That's me. In my life, um, in my life, I've found as I've got older, I've, I was never a creative person at school. I was never art or drama or any of those things, but I've found I've really enjoyed creativity whether that's writing a creative sports story or doing a podcast, which is a very creative thing to do. Uh, my elder sister, Madeline, we were living in Double Bay in Sydney um, for a short period of time. Dad was there for work and used to walk up the hill with mum and Madeline and she would go to piano lessons. And I remember mum saying to me, I was probably six or seven. I remember her clearly saying to me, mate, would you like to do a musical instrument? I was like, mum, I just want to play cricket keep the footy. I wish I'd said to my mum, I'd like to learn the guitar because it's something I've always wanted to do. And probably, um, four months ago, five months ago, I've, I've got a busted finger on, uh, on the hand you need to form the chords on my small finger. And I always use that as an excuse, but five months ago, mate, I signed up to a teach yourself guitar online course and it's, I'm so bad at it and I just wish I was good at it. Um, but I, I really enjoy it. Um, like the other day for the first time I managed to play in some musical semblance with my daughter who was playing the ukulele. I managed to play ish, um, shotgun with my daughter and it was like, she could do what I couldn't, but it was, it was, it was one of my best moments I've had with her. It was really, really cool. It gets me emotional thinking about it. Um, so I wish I could have gone back. To buddy as a seven-year-old and said, yeah, mum, I'd like to learn the guitar because then I'd be freaking Jimi Hendrix and I'd be a rock star and that would be the only better job than what I have at the moment. Well, yeah, and when you were backpacking around the world, you would have had a guitar with you. Like one of those. How good would I be? So I had the long hair, I had the surfboard, (laughs) I had the guitar. Surfboard, guitar. I couldn't have missed. Could not have missed. Could not have missed. <laughs> hey, mate, this has been fantastic. Hey, Thank before, you so before we go, this. can yes. I just say, um, I went to one of your very first shows in Melbourne at a tiny little RSL or something. I don't know what it was. And it was your first year of the comedy festival and you were a few jokes in and someone rolled up late and I was thinking, oh, how's he going to go? And someone walked into the room. I can remember it clearly and it won't be funny to you, but 
they walked in and there's probably 15 people there and they were late. And you said to them, oh, can I get you anything? And they looked at you as if to say, oh, and you said, how about a fucking watch? <laughs> and I started laughing then and I've never stopped laughing at all your shows since. So it sounds funny to say on this podcast, but I'm really proud of what you've done because we've talked about um, what I've done and I'd love to talk to you about what you've done, but I know you went to Canberra and you were going to be a financial journalist and that was going to be your life, but you saw something else you wanted to do and you've become the best at it. And it's really cool. I'm really proud of you. I think it's exceptional. Thanks for doing the show, mate. Easy done.